Our scripture reading today is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have been. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eye of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. As we turn to Psalm 146 together, let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we, we do want to pray. Pray for peace in our midst. You are with us. May your word go out and change us, shape us, mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. God, whatever uh, we bring into this, may we end where this psalm ends. Uh, Work in us whatever needs to be worked so that we might praise your name. Amen. Have you noticed about yourself or about people that we can't help but praise? You give someone a good meal and what do they want to do now because they have an, an ever-present audience on the internet? They want to take a picture of it and say how awesome it was, right? You, you ask them about their family, they're going to tell you how awesome their grandkids are. You ask about uh, their favorite thing to do, and they're going to tell you way more than you need to know about your favorite, their favorite sports team, and, and about recruiting, and, and about that one play that was so awesome that's never been done before, and you're going to hear way more than you would ever want to know, right? Like, we are people who love to praise. We can't help but praise, and we do that because we're designed that way. I mean, we are a people who are designed to praise. God created people in his own image, and as image bearers, we, we are made to praise God, the one that we are imaged in the like of. And, and so uh, we are these ones who are designed with a certain kind of capacity for praise, and, and because that's our design, we, we just we do it. it. It's something that's just like an impulse in us to, to say something good about things, to, to bring praise. And, and because we're designed by a specific God and in his specific in him image, the, the greatest joy and satisfaction that we're going to find in this life is not praising food or, or sports teams or other relationships that we have. It's going to be found in praising God. I like the confession that Augustine makes when he says, thou awakest, you awake us to delight in thy praise. Right? He, he is the one who wakes us up to delight in praising Him. That's our ultimate delight. He says, For you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it repose or finds rest in Thee, in You, God. 
The, the problem with all of this, though, as good as that is, is that God does truly give us our greatest delight when we live according to the design that we've been given and praising His name and finding rest in Him. But the problem is, is that that praise that we are made to give is so easily and so often misdirected and misfires. It doesn't flow to the Lord, the one who created us and made us to praise Him as it should because of our sin. And so in light of that, we are a people who need to be called to repent and turn our praise in a specific and certain direction. We need to be commanded to and invited into praising the Lord. And that's what scripture graciously does. It invites the people that are made in the image of God to turn their praise to the Lord. It's a specific praise. It goes to a specific place and we are invited that because that is fitting for our specific design. And Psalm 146 does that, doesn't it? It is a call, a command, an invitation to live according to our design and praise the Lord. Here's what Psalm 146 calls us to. It calls us to praise the Lord, and it has a dual purpose, not only just to praise the Lord, but to trust this praiseworthy Lord. So praise the Lord and trust this praiseworthy Lord. The, the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is Tehillim, which is praises. And these Psalms, this Psalm book, 150 of them, give words for praise and invitations to praise, and that's what happens in verse 1. Praise the Lord, he says. The psalm begins and ends with that exact same phrase. He's communicating something with that. It's booking on either side. Praise the Lord. There's a beginning and an ending here. And both on either side are invitations, commands, and calls for all of God's people to do this specific thing, to praise the Lord. And to praise the Lord is this act of admiring Him, honoring Him, thanking Him, glorifying Him. You could put in other synonyms in there. That's what praising the Lord is. And this is a very gracious invitation because Israel and all of humanity are fundamentally made for it. Like, this is what you were designed for. You, you came in and you didn't know maybe what you're designed for, but now you need to know you're designed to praise God. The impulse that you have to post a picture of your food on the internet and say how great it was is because you were made by a creator who made you to praise, and this psalm just invites you to turn that to the place where it's ultimately supposed to go. Praise the Lord. But God's people need to be called to it because there's a problem, right? We need to be invited into it. So the psalmist addresses all of God's people in the first part of verse 1. It says, let's praise the Lord. And then he turns on himself and his own soul, knowing that same problem, that, that praise doesn't always go the, the way I want it to go. Individually, the psalmist is saying, and so he says to his own soul, praise the Lord, oh my soul. We, we went from a, a plural, praise the Lord, let's do this together, to a singular, you, you praise the Lord. The soul, this organ of desire within a person, of, of vital needs, it's the very essence of the self, the, the essence of life. And the psalmist, he, he turns to his soul and he encourages his own soul. He commands and addresses his own soul, the deepest part of him, and he says to that place, Praise the Lord. That's what he does there. So with whatever else is going on in this psalmist's life, you can imagine all the ups and downs that, that one from Israel would have uh, you know, like experienced. Perhaps they're in exile. Perhaps they're coming back from exile and have almost nothing. Right? And per perhaps they're in the middle of, of some of these kings that are over them that aren't very good. Or, or think about just the ups and downs of his own daily life. It could have been all kinds of things that, that go into this. And no matter what is going on in his life, 
he says, soul, praise the Lord. That the psalmist here, he talks to himself. You, you see this in the psalms. Often they'll, they'll turn on their souls and they'll say something to them. And here he says, he turns to his soul and he says, praise the Lord. And far from being kind of like off his rocker here, like what are you doing talking to yourself like this? What actually is happening is he's giving us something that's greatly instructive for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that one of our greatest problems, one of the problems of humanity is that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. And he says this. We all know this to be true. Here's what he says. He says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. Think about it. Like, how many things just rushed at you immediately when you woke up? Like, did you like command them to, to rush at you? No, they just happened to rush at you as soon as you woke up. He says, you have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking to you. Who is talking to you? He says, yourself is talking to you. And there was a day this week that I was a pretty hard person to be around, not because of anything external to me, not because of a, a circumstantial situation that was an issue, but because I was listening to myself. And it can be so subtle, it sounds like something that's really good and right, and yet you're, you're listening to yourself, and all of a sudden, when you, what happens when you listen to yourself, you become the center of your own thinking, the center of your own universe, and that's going to create all kinds of havoc for those around you. We weren't designed that way. And there's, if we're going to listen to ourselves, it's always going to move in a certain direction. And that direction is going to place you at the center of life. And I like what Paul Tripp said. He nailed me with this. And he says, if you put yourself in the center of your world, you will find plenty of things to complain about. And not praise the Lord for. And not be thankful for. And we could go on with that. And to stop listening to ourselves, to stop being the center of our own universe and the center of our own thinking, we're going to need to do verse 1, and we're going to need one another a little bit in this. We're going to need to hear from others, praise the Lord, and we're going to need to turn on our own soul and address our own soul and say, in the midst of whatever's going on, we're going to tell ourselves, we're going to tell our soul, praise the Lord. Amen. God's people are going to need to do this at times when they're not feeling like praising. Or, or the circumstances don't line up in order to like, be conducive to praise. Or there's distractions all around. It doesn't feel like I can even focus enough to praise the Lord. We're going to need to turn on ourselves and say, that doesn't matter. Praise the Lord. This isn't to ignore all that stuff. We, we don't say we ignore what's going on in the ups and downs of life or what's going on all around us. We don't stuff them deep down and just disregard our circumstances or our feelings. No, what we do is we say in the midst of all of that, no matter what all that contains, we say in the midst of that, praise the Lord. This is a psalmist who, when he writes this, these words, he is one who, who has this commitment to say, I, I don't want anything to dictate my praise of the Lord. I don't want the praise of the Lord dictated by my circumstances, by my feelings, by the, by the atmosphere, by any of those things. I want to praise the Lord, and that should be our attitude too. So, so how do we do this? How do we do this when we're not feeling? How do we do this when the circumstances don't seem to line up? How do we do this when we, we are at the center of our own thinking? I, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He continues, and he says this, that the main art, the main art, this is interesting that he says that, in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, to preach to yourself, to question yourself. Many sins, many Failures, many lack of much lack of praise to the Lord results from listening to ourselves and not talking to ourselves, not taking ourselves in hand with the truths of Scripture, with, with the praise and the promises from God and commands from God that we are armed with in His Word. 
And when we take those and we address them to our situation, all of a sudden we get to stop the listening to ourselves and putting ourselves at the center of our thinking and we get to hear the greatness of our God, the goodness of all the things that he has done, and we get to turn from ourselves to him and be able to say to ourselves, praise the Lord. And in saying in light of all that's going on, no matter what else is going on, soul and others around us praise the Lord. That our circumstances, our feelings, or whatever's going on, they're not going to dictate the praise of the Lord. We're to praise the Lord always. Maybe some of us need to say that to ourselves this morning. We need to turn on ourselves right now. Uh, maybe don't say it out loud at this moment, but tell your soul, praise the Lord. No matter what else is going on, this is what you are made for. God made you to praise him. Turn on your soul now if you need to and say, praise the Lord. And by faith, commit to it. That's what this psalmist does. Look at verse 2, this, this commitment he makes. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. He puts a stake in the ground and, and says, in my life, by faith, I'm committing to praising the Lord as long as I live. Th- this commitment to, isn't to praise the Lord when he goes up to Jerusalem as in the temple. He doesn't set that kind of limitation on it. He doesn't say when it's a day, that you know, the, a certain day of the week, then I will praise the Lord. He, he doesn't put that limitation on it. He, he doesn't say when life is good. Here's the, here's the commitment that he makes here. I, I want to praise the Lord while my life just endures, while there's being in me. And one way to help press down that commitment in our lives and to speak this into our own soul is to do what he does in verse 2. This is one way of effectively talking to your soul. He says, verse 2, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. God's people have always been a singing people. That's why we have an inspired book of songs here, 150 of them. These were written over, you know, kind of a, a thousand year period because God's people have been a singing people. Here's a thousand year-ish collection of songs. If you look through the Old Testament, you see this going on throughout the Old Testament. They have these examples. of like They even set up ways to make sure that they can sing together, that the New Testament commands it. You, you see it in the end, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. They're singing all over the place. Why? Why sing? Well, one theologian, I think, gets it right. He says, we know by experience that singing has great force and vigor to move and inflame the hearts of men, to invoke and praise God with a more vehement and ardent zeal. Like it stirs something in us that we almost like we, we can't be stirred other ways. It, it captures something and moves us in certain ways that just normal speech doesn't seem to do sometimes. It, it hits all of man so that the kind of inner and outer, like the core of our being is all directed in the same place. And, and song has the power to do that in ways that other things can't. I think one uh, shows it well. R- Rosa Parks, civil rights activist, especially in Montgomery bus boycott, what, what she said was this. She said, one thing that used to keep us going was the moving words of certain hymns. Singing gave us the feeling that with God's help, we could overcome whatever we were facing. 
And that's the idea, right? That's what singing can do. It's like you, you seem to be facing something and you're just talking about it. It can feel pretty hard. But somehow you sing forth some truth, some greatness, and, and all of a sudden you think, man, we can overcome this thing. Singing can do that. And here's what happened. God gave this inspired book of praises that hits all of life, all of our emotions, like every part of us, the, all the ups and downs, so that in all of it we could sing praises to God. And so the people of God need to be a people who commit to praise the Lord, to address their souls. And when they're still cold in their praise to the Lord, they can sing forth the praises of God. The, the commitment here doesn't require, again, a specific location, a certain setting, the right set of feelings or circumstances around them with light, lighting or whatever. It doesn't require any of that. It requires that I have life in me. And if I have life in me, then I can sing the praises of God in the temple or not, in the midst of suffering or not, whether things are good or not, whether there's, there's a, a people around me or not, this is what we're to do, sing praises to the Lord. It, it's not that the, the people of God always go around singing as if they're in a musical, right? Like every line we have to sing. I don't think that's what's envisioned there. I think what he's getting at with this whole sing the praises of God is that this is to be a way of life for people. The, the verses 1 and 2 are presenting this, praise of the Lord, singing praise of the Lord as a way of life. We're not the kind of people who are waiting around for the right setting or mood, but instead we're the kind of people that are committed to in any circumstances and set of things that are going on in life. We're going to be people who praise the Lord and sing praises to the Lord. So maybe you need to make that commitment today. And what a place. This is the place to do it. You're among God's people. You're, you're here to say some truths, hear some truths, pray some truths. And among God's people, this is a good place to be invited and called and commanded again to not only praise the Lord, but to sing praises to the Lord. You are called to praise. And so here's my suggestion. Don't leave without praising and singing praise today. Let this corporate worship, this, this corporate singing that we do together help set the tone for what your life is to reflect and look like the rest of the week. That's what it's intended for. And so this psalm, it moves from this command for God's people to praise to commanding them to trust. First, it starts out by what not to trust. Verse 3, he says, Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. The, the princes, the Son of Man, they, these are the powerful ones, the influential people of the world, the, the people who probably have means of help. They're the strong and because that is true, there's a real appeal here to look to them for salvation, to look to them for deliverance. And again, think through the possible uh, set of circumstances that were going on for this psalm. Think of the possible settings, right? Perhaps it's the time when Israel is in the promised land and they have the, the, the walls of Jerusalem built, but who comes to the walls? This mighty superpower called the Syria. They come to the walls and they're saying, hey, you guys have this God, but all these other nations that we've conquered, I have their crowns here if you want to see them. Like, they had gods too. They all said they would protect them too, but here we are. Like, maybe that's what's going on when they, they look here. And it, it would be pretty tempting in such a situation to think, like, maybe Egypt can help us. Or maybe we should just put our trust in Assyria and say, all right, you, you win, right? You're here, you've got all these horses, like we're, we surrender, you can have us. Think of all the ways that they would be tempted to look to money or, or kings or even like, again, if you look to other uh, forces of the day, it's like, 
We know the number of the spears that Egypt has. Like if we put their number and our number together, could we trust that enough in order to, to bring victory here? Think, think about maybe Nehemiah's situation where, where they moved back after exile, back into the promised land, where their own independence as a people would, would be a complete joke. Like they can't do it on their own. There, there's no way you're going to build these walls. There's no way you're going to get a temple. There's no way you can keep away from your enemies. It's a joke. Why don't you put your trust in something else? And in the midst of that, this psalm says, hey, don't do that. Don't put your trust in princes in, this, in a son of man. Princes are those they can see, they can hear, they're in flesh, and so they seem to have a real means for deliverance, a real means for salvation. You could number their spears, maybe even number how much money they have and what they can offer you. They're, they're the ones who look like they can give you what's needed for life. They can provide for you. They can empower you. They can deliver you if you would just turn to them. But verse 3, what it says is it, it says, don't do that. And it puts its finger right on this ever-present temptation for God's people to put their trust in things on earth, in princes or a son of man. And it's a te- especially a temptation in the midst of suffering. Like when Assyria is at the wall. Like when you're Nehemiah and you have no resources on your own. That's an area of temptation. Israel's history, it is littered with the disappointment of this people putting their trust in a prince, in a son of man. Human history is littered with all the disappointments of people putting their trust in a man and being let down over and over and over again. And that same weakness is in us too, to rely on and trust in a prince or a man. Maybe you see it every couple of years when a new election comes up and you think like, this is finally going to be the one to deliver us. Maybe we can have change now. Maybe we can have hope now. Maybe we can move forward now. How many slogans do I need to hit now? Or maybe you can hear it in thinking like in your job, like if I just go to this next seminar by this guru, maybe I can then advance to the next stage of my career and finally get the means that I want to, to have the life that I really like. Maybe you think if I just have this one part, this one relationship in my life, then everything will be complete and I'll really have what I need. It could be government. It could be one who's influential. It could be one who's powerful. It could be any of that. If you put your trust there, you're you're going against what the psalm says to do. So, So ask yourself the question, who or what are you relying on? Who do you trust in? What, what are you turning to? We, we are all looking to something. We are looking somewhere. We are looking to someone. What is it? Who is it? Where is it? Like History is littered, again, with the disappointment of putting trust in man because man will not deliver. There's disappointment everywhere. And the reason that man cannot ultimately deliver or save is given to us in verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. There's a reality for every single prince, every every son of man, for every person that Psalm 146 wants to make sure is put into the equation of who to trust. Like you're, you're, you're looking at the math, like we have Egypt over here, they're strong and powerful, they have this many spears, maybe they can deliver us from Assyria, let's put our trust there. That, that could be part of the equation. And what Psalm 146 just says, let's put something else into the equation while we're at it. When we're thinking about who to trust, here's what we want put into the equation, death. See, princes, they, they seemingly have all the means that can be seen or numbered or even felt, like they can deliver, they can say, they, they seemingly have that all together, but... Here's what Psalm 146 tells them and reminds everyone who would read it. Their time is ticking. I don't know if you've read the latest biography 
Let me give you a spoiler for it. It's going to end in death. Amen. Right? If it's a biography of someone who's living, like, let me give you the spoiler alert for their life. Going to end in death. Right? Verse 4, notice that word when. When. Like, death is pending. It's imminent. It's approaching every second it comes nearer and nearer. And so for that prince and that son of man, when that death is approaching, here's what the psalmist also wants to just logically link us to. They're going to die. Guess what's going to happen to their plans? They're going to go away with them. Whatever their plan was, however they thought they could deliver you and save you, whatever you thought they could do, their plan is going to die with them. And I love what he does here. In verse 3, he uses this word, son of man. Now, when we hear Son of Man, we, we think Jesus. He used that term so often in his own life. He's not speaking of the Messiah here. He's not speaking of Jesus. When he uses Son of Man, that word for man is Adam, Adam, right? This is used in, in the creation accounts that God created man, Adam, right here. And in verse 4, he, he turns and he says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. Get that word, Adama, like earth. So it's like Adam was made from the earth and here's earth that he's going to return to in verse 4. It's a beautiful way of saying like he, he came from the earth and to the earth he's going to return. Here's the complete picture of any prince, any son of man, any human being is that you were made from the earth and you're going to return to the earth. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says that. And dust to dust. James 4, he, he, he perks us up and encourages us saying your life's a mist. It's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. That's what it's like. And guess what? Your plans are too. The prince's plans are too. Here's what that should do for the people of God. It should put the brakes on trusting in a man or their plans. And think of how devastating it would be to put all of your trust in a prince, all of your trust in a person, and then for that person to die. How devastating would that be if you had all your trust there and now they're gone? And also how exhausting. How exhausting would it be to put your hope and trust fully in a person and then die and then think, I've got to find somebody else. Oh, here's the next person, the next candidate in line, and we're going to put all of our trust there. We're going to rely on them there. And then that fails again, and then just you're exhausted over and over again. You, you move through disappointment over and over again to look to and hope and rely on someone and their plans that just keep over and over again ending in dust would be exhausting, it would be devastating, and there's a better way. See, verses 3 and 4 are gracious verses with a gracious command. Don't put your trust in princes. But what they're doing is they're preparing us for what's next. There's a better way to live. You see, all those princes, any son of man, any person without God and his breathing life to them, all they are is literally a, just a heap of dirt. Pile of dirt. Their plans. Pile of dirt. And so give us a better way. And here it is, verse 5. Blessed is he whose hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And when you see that word blessed, doesn't that recall Psalm 1? Right? Blessed is the man, and what kind of man is it? One who puts their trust not in the things of the earth, right? Not in walking in the way that seems good and right to most people, but in walking the way of the Lord. It reminds us of Psalm 2 and it says, like, it looks like the nations are raging and things are going to fall apart, but the Lord is the one who laughs and holds them all in derision. And what's he going to do? He's going to set up his king and he's going to reign and rule over all. And it says at the very end of Psalm 2, blessed is the one who takes their refuge in him. 
There's a blessed way of living. There's a blessed life that the Psalms want to keep putting in front of us over and over again. And when one lives as if another person can give them what's essential, can provide for them salvation and deliverance and life, here's what the Psalms want to make sure we know. That is not the blessed life. It will not end happy for you. It will only move toward death. But there's a better way. There's a happy way, a blessed way way, and that is to find life in God, relying wholly in God, trusting wholly in God. He is to be the help of people. This is the God who he says is the God of Jacob. That's a way of describing God that that came out of a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Bush starts talking and says, hey, I'm the God of Jacob. In other words, he's looking back and saying, hey, Moses, I'm the God that made that covenant I spoke back then. I made a promise back then. I'm that God. So what was he saying when he says, I'm the God of Jacob? One, I'm still God. Jacob is dust. I'm still God. I'm a living God. And I made a covenant. I'm a faithful God. Here I am to uphold part of the covenant here. I can be your hope. I can be your help. This is a God who, when he says he's the God of Jacob, is is putting everyone on notice. This is a God who will not die. And his plans will not fail because he is this living God who made plans that he will be faithful to. And so this is a God who in verse 5 is putting forward to us as the God of Jacob, the one who we can trust fully. Amen. Of Jacob, the, the help of Jacob like, recalls the way God helped Jacob. You, you think of Jacob when he's fleeing from his brother Esau who wants to put him to death. He is on his own. He is alone. He has been kind of a scoundrel up until this point. He should be abandoned and left by himself. But God shows up to him in the middle of the night with this ladder, right? This stairway to heaven. Then he goes on and he still hasn't like fixed everything in his life. He goes to Laban and he's kind of a scoundrel there. This is his uncle and he's kind of like not a great guy there either. He leaves his uncle in the middle of the night. He takes his family and this vulnerable crew starts traveling and Laban finds out about it and he wants to get him too. He's like, well, I'm not letting them leave. They're taking all my stuff. And so Laban, with his crew, he goes after them and Laban surely would have overtaken them and destroyed them. But something happened to Laban. Do you remember what happened? In the middle of the night, God says, you better not touch him. Kind of with that tone, I think, because Laban gets really scared. And he overtakes Jacob and he says, I'm not going to touch you because God said not to. This is a a God of help. Think about how God helped Jacob when he he goes back to Canaan and he has these sons. They're always threatening to like rip apart the seams. But there's a famine in the land at one point that threatens death for all the people around in Egypt and all around Canaan. And they probably would have been part of the people that would have died from that famine, but there was something that God had done to be their help. He'd sent one of his sons, Joseph, ahead of them, right? To provide for them in the midst of this famine so that Jacob and his family could be preserved, so that Jacob and his family, while they moved in Egypt, wouldn't be utterly wiped off the map by Pharaoh, but instead would have favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And here's what the psalmist wants to tell us in verse 5. If that God is your help, then you really have a blessed life. If that God is your hope, then no matter what is going on, your future is actually really bright. I mean, Jacob brings that up. He was a scoundrel and God kept showing him grace over and over again. If that God is your God, that's really the God you need. That's the help you need. That's the hope you need. That's the blessed 
life? What kind of God can be living, can be faithful, can be fully trusted, and his plans be fully trusted? Who, who can you trust for actual help and hope? And, and the psalm says, it's this one true living God. It's the God of Jacob. And he just continues to, to just gush about him. Listen to verse 6. He's the one who is the God of Jacob. His hope is in the Lord his God. And then verse 6, he just continues. He made heaven and earth. The sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. It's like he can't stop once he starts thinking about this God and that we should trust him. He just keeps going. This God of Jacob is not only this living and faithful God, he's the creator. Like when he does that, surely they would have recalled some of the words of Genesis where where in the beginning was God. And what does he do? He just starts speaking. What kind of God can speak and things just happen? This God, he's the creator. And this is the same God who upholds truth. He keeps faith forever. He he executes justice. He's the faithful one who will always do what is right as judge. He, He sustains and provides as the sovereign one. He's this one who's going to give food to the hungry. He provides, sustains providentially. He executes justice. Think of all these things. Like This is the one who alone is qualified as judge. A a prince has such limited wisdom in light of all of human history, right? And yet God is the God who was, he is, and he is to come. Surely he's much more qualified to be a judge. And this is the God that the psalmist wants us to trust. He made all, he rules over all with complete justice and faithfulness. He's so very unlike all these princes that you could trust in. So don't put your trust there, put him in a trustworthy God. So from creation to preserving, God is a God who is worthy of our trust. And this psalm, he's just, he's just gushing about these things. He, he moves in, in verse 7. You kind of see a shift in how he starts like listing things out and wording things. And so he moves from, from all these things in verse 7 in the beginning of verse 7 to almost like a, here's his role as redeemer. Like this is redemptive language that he uses at the end of verse 7 all the way through verse 9. He, he says that the Lord, he sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. In other words, he's putting forth this God who is this covenant Lord who is a redeemer. Think of the Exodus. They were slaves to the Egyptians and God redeemed them. He brought them out of their slavery and gave them a promised land. Think of their return from their exile to the Babylonians. Here's a God who said, you will go into exile, but I will bring you back as I promise. He is a God who sets the prisoners free. There's no other earthly explanation for how they could get out of their bondage in Egypt and their bondage in Babylon other than the Lord's providential redeeming work. He's the redeemer. He's the one who opens the eyes of the blind. This is interesting. uh, You remember Elisha, one of the prophets during the king's Uh, Elisha one time, he has uh, the enemy at their doorstep and they look like they're going to overpower them and Elisha's servant is kind of scared and he's like, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, well, uh, actually there's more with us than are with them and he's like, there's no way, I'm counting, I'm doing the math here and there's me and you and that's kind of it here and Elisha prays like, and and God opens the servant's eyes and he sees this great host and he's like, okay, never mind, we're going to win and That is God opening the eyes of the blind. Maybe spiritually even he could be speaking here, but we see all over the book of Isaiah all these prophecies about God doing something with the blind, opening their eyes, working in their lives, 
Here's a God who lifts up those who are bowed down. He's the one who exalts those who get low. I think of so many stories throughout the Old Testament of where people get really low before God and God keeps exalting them into high places. Here's the one who, listen to what he says, he, he watches over or he loves the righteous. He loves people. He is a God who's full of love and he watches over the sojourner. See, we made it into the scripture after all. Like he, he watches over. And these are threads that you could see. If you look through the Old Testament, you will see God's redeeming work in these specific ways all through the Old Testament. They're all over its pages where God has shown himself over and over again to be these things, to have this character, to be this kind of God. This is a God, in other words, who shows himself all through the pages of Scripture as trustworthy. Like he is not scared to have his story written down and sustained and maintained and read by people throughout history because he's a God who's like, my record is without flaw. Like I am a God who can do all of these things, bring the wicked to ruin. I am a God who, who gives all of these things rightly and fully. And so I am this one who can be trusted. And so when God's people find themselves, especially in difficult times, especially in the midst of suffering and trial and hardship and tribulation, maybe even exile, they can know that even if princes have help that can be numbered, that this is a God who is actually worthy of our trust and only he is worthy of our trust. And may we know the same thing in our own lives. That this God of Psalm 146 is worthy of our trust. As a God who is living, who is faithful to all of his promises, doesn't Advent remind us of that? How God made all these promises and then you turn and you look at this Advent of our God and over and over again you keep seeing like, wait a second, I've heard that before. Oh, that's a promise that he just fulfilled. I've heard that before. And there it is again and over and over and over again in the life of Jesus you see promises that were made before have been kept in Christ. We can trust this God. He's faithful. He's righteous. He's just. And so what does it look like to trust God and not princes in the midst of some difficult times, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of suffering? Those times exist. And and in those times, again, especially our temptations to trust in the things of this earth and princes and the Son of Man are, are flared, right? So what do we do in the midst of that? It might look like what we see in the old the pages of the Old Testament. I remember Hezekiah's story. Hezekiah, Syria, literally a superpower at the time of his life. They come to his walls. They taunt him openly to his people. They say, it's going to go really badly for you. You're probably not going to make it through this. Don't listen to Hezekiah or his God. We've defeated lots of kings like him, more powerful than him, lots of gods like him. We own all of those people now, so don't listen to him. And when Hezekiah is taunted, after some of his past failures, Hezekiah had some failures where it's like in the midst of these taunts, he turns to Egypt. And he turns to saying, okay, never mind. We were withholding, paying you. Now we're going to pay you because we just want peace. Like Hezekiah fails many times, but there's one time when he doesn't fail. Look in 2 Kings 19. Here's what Hezekiah does in light of being taunted by the Assyrians. Hezekiah received this letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And when Hezekiah went, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And here's what he does. He puts it before the Lord. I don't know what your tribulation or suffering is. This is a good place to start. Just throw it before the Lord. And here's what he does. He prays. And he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. It sounds like a psalm here. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Here's a prince 
has breath in his lungs, mocking what kind of a God? A living God. And so he says, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. There's some truth in what they're saying. They have cast their gods into the fire, but they were not gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. You're different, God. So now, O Lord, our God, save us. Deliver us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. In the midst of whatever suffering and tribulation you are facing, in the midst of the difficulty and the temptation to put your trust in a man of some sort, in a means of earth in some sort, one of the things that can move you from putting your trust there to putting your trust in God, who we cannot see, is to lay it before the Lord and to pray. And prayer can move us to trusting in God. And so let's just lay it before the Lord, direct everything to Him and say, God, you better do something for the sake of your name. Your name, that's what he's saying is on the line here. All those other things like the other gods, he even he says that they weren't real gods. We trust that you're the real God, so would you please help me to trust in you? The scripture is not afraid to put God's name on the line as one who is worthy of all of our trust. And so we can be a people who look to and see our God as a trustworthy God and keep turning to him over and over again as a trustworthy God. Not just knowing him in our heads as someone who we can trust because of X, Y, and Z, but who can keep throwing ourselves Casting ourselves upon him over and over again as one who will catch us. He is a trustworthy God. And we, of all people who could read this psalm, should be able to do this as a trustworthy God because we can see him in the face of Jesus. After all, it was through Jesus that everything was made. All things were made through him and for him. And actually right now, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's through him we can see a God who cares about righteousness. He lived his life perfectly. It's through him we can see that this is a God of justice. He was so concerned with doing what is right and upholding justice that he himself entered into this world and he came as a baby to a poor family. Like what a story Advent is. It was through him this happened, that we have justice upheld, so he can be the judge of man. He sets prisoners free, freeing them from the power that is over them, the power of sin and death, because he himself defeated it. He is the one who opens eyes of the blind spiritually, but even physically in his life. He goes around like, this man's born blind. From, from, from the beginning, he's blind. Who can heal him? Well, I can. I can just tell him, and it happens. He lifts up those who are downcast. I think of the woman who's dealing with this issue of blood and she has turned to princes over and over again, these doctors, and she has turned to princes and spending her money on the things that we think can deliver and save and none of them worked. They, they left her worse off than when she began. And then all she does is she just kind of creeps up behind Jesus and barely gets a piece of his robe and boom, she is healed. Put not your trust in princes. He is the one who lifts up He's the one who watches over. Think of his people. And 
when he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now at that time, we know in the book of Acts, the story's already moved from Jesus has died, he's risen, he ascended, like he's, he went to heaven, and all of a sudden he, he appears on this road to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? Like, if the disciples were in on that conversation, like, wait a second, we saw you ascend into heaven, so how are you here? Well, because he watches over his people, he cares about them deeply, and so if you're going to mess with his people, you're messing with him. He is one who watches over and cares for his people, who indeed puts his very presence in the midst of them and says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and we also know through Jesus that this is the one who will also judge. He warns. Because the plans of princes, they appeal and they persuade, but they will all turn into a pile of dirt. And so he warns, don't put your trust there. I will judge the living and the dead. Put your trust in me because I am the living one. Those will end in dirt. Those plans will end in dirt. Mine will not. His plans and his judgments will reign in the end. And so this God revealed in Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our trust this morning. And so let's ask again, in light of Jesus... In light of his coming, his living, his dying, his raising, and being seated at the right hand of God, let's ask again, Mike, who are you trusting and relying upon for your life? Who are you looking to for salvation and deliverance? Who are you trusting in life and in death? The way of those who trust in God is blessed, but the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. It ends in ruin. Princes have some reign for a time, but it is short. It's a mist. But the psalmist reminds us to close out this psalm, verse 10. That God reigns and he will reign. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Just further emphasis you didn't get it with forever, how about all generations? Is that more specific to help? Like here's the emphasis is that this is a God who reigns. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. The book of Kings ends with the death of Kings. I mean, do I need to continue? All biographies are going to end with death. But here's what the psalmist says. There's a God who reigns. And he will reign forever. It doesn't end. And so his plans don't end. They'll come to fruition and fulfillment. The conclusion that all of God's people are meant to draw from reading through this psalm is that they are to praise the Lord. It's the beginning and he ends with it. Praise the Lord. This is the design for God's people. It's fitting for them. It befits the righteous. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of trust. This is where it all should begin and end for God's people. Praise the Lord. And so here the invitation before the end comes. Praise the Lord. Right? No matter how one enters into Psalm 146, whatever's going on in their lives or whatever's going on in the history of Israel or in our history right now, the invitation is to praise the Lord and to turn your trust from princes to the one true living God and we know even more than the psalmist originally would have come with we know how he stepped down how he lived how he died how he rose and no one else has done that he is worthy of our trust and our praise again Genesis ends with death Deuteronomy ends with death Joshua ends with death the kings end with death but the gospels don't end in death the gospels that tell us of how our God came they don't end in death they end in 
resurrection life. And then Acts continues this resurrection life through ordinary people. And then that goes all the way to the end of the story where there's, there's the living one and then there's living ones. Like there's life there at the end. And this living one is going to come again and judge the living and the dead and then reign forever with the people. And so, as those who know that to be true, we need to receive the invitation and praise the Lord and turn our trust to this one true living God. He's worthy of our trust, eternally worthy of our praise. We can receive the invitation and we can call out and turn on ourselves and turn to one another and say, praise the Lord. No matter what you came in with, hear from this psalm, say to one another, say to your soul, praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Amen. Amen. Let's just take a few minutes um, and just reflect on what we heard. Uh, I personally need to do that. Um, I think a lot of us probably do. Um, Think about the things that you're giving your passion to, the things that you're worshiping, the things you're putting your trust in. Um, What are the answers to those questions? And let's let's just talk with God about that just personally for a few minutes, and then I'll, I'll close us. Father in heaven, Lord, we have been made to worship, and we are really, really good at it. And unfortunately, Lord, so often the focus of our worship is not the one who we were made to worship. 
as a godly man once said, our hearts are idle factories, Lord. We are inclined to chase things that are empty, things that will end in death, things that will end in disappointment, things that are temporary, things that are tethered to this world that's passing away. We find our hope and our identity and our careers and our success and our reputation and our teams and our music and our art and the list goes on and on. And Lord, we do that because we're sinful and we're broken. God, help us this morning to remember that you alone are worthy of our worship. That your word, Lord, can be trusted. No matter our circumstances, no matter our difficulties and challenges, no matter our successes and our joys, God, we know your word will stand the test of time and it will not fail. We know your faithfulness, God, is greater than anything in this world. Father, we know that your power, your majesty is unmatched. God, you alone can give us life. You alone can sustain us. You have provided, Lord, what we need to be made whole. You have shown yourself throughout the ages, God, to be faithful and true and just. And you have called us, Lord, as your people to reflect your character in this world. To be ambassadors, Lord, on your behalf, to point people to their only hope. God, help us be a people who lives like that. Help us to submit all our passions, Lord, all our desires, all our ambition to you, to hand over control, to be skilled at handling ourselves, to learn what it is, Lord, to preach to our own souls, to speak truth to our own minds, to allow your word, Lord, just to permeate our hearts and our minds and to change us. Thank you for being so good, Lord, for being so patient as we struggle in this life. We praise your holy name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.